I was thinking a little bit today about what the purpose of these Dharma talks are and uh, what, am, what am I supposed to do sitting up here. And um, I could feel that I wasn't very interested in, in talking about the Dharma because it's kind of boring. <laughs> In the same way that <clears throat> uh, reading the menu for too long is boring, or reading the recipe. I guess some people like to read recipe books, but that's not the point of recipe books, is it? So to talk about the Dharma, I'm afraid that I, if I did that, I, we would all miss something. There's a Bob Thurman uh, complained, a Buddhist scholar and teacher, complained about these Buddhists in America because they're always talking about practice, 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 practice. And he wanted to know when was going to be the performance. <laughs> and, you know, he has a point, you know, we, you know, are we kind of practicing and practicing, waiting for something, something out there is going to happen. Are we going to learn all about the Dharma so we can take it home with us and practice a the recipe there? But you know, my understanding of Dharma is it's something very immediate, something that is meant to touch us, touch, touch us, touch us in the heart, touch us now here. And there's a long tradition in Buddhism of teachers not teaching about the Dharma, but being the Dharma, manifesting the Dharma, which seems kind of lofty thing to do, but also of pointing, pointing the Dharma, and pointing to it not as, you know, something you find in a book, but pointing it to something that's here, that we all share, that's here now. It's, it's here. And the question is, what is it that's here? What's available here? What is it that's alive here? Where's the Dharma that's here? And that, that interests me quite a bit. And that's been my, you know, a lifetime of practice has been, you know, the, where the entry point, the fulfillment, the, the love of Dharma has been in the immediacy of my experience, the lived experience as it's being lived. And it's something about the immediacy of it, which is nourishing, which is meaningful independent of what the experience is. You know, if you're looking for the experience or looking to get rid of something, you might be missing the immediacy of this. When Buddhism uh, came to China, it had, Indian Buddhism had developed a huge, huge corpus of books and philosophy and it took the Chinese about five, six hundred years to make sense of it. Literally, it was so much. And the unfortunate thing about those 500 years, the Indians kept making more Buddhism. <laughs> so they, they would export it to China and the Chinese would deal with it more as it came. <clears throat> and, um, <clears throat> and somewhere around the 
seventh century, I think, <clears throat> there was a very famous Chinese <clears throat> Buddhist teacher, kind of philosopher, who was kind of the pinnacle of this big enterprise of Chinese, Chinese, Chinese trying to make sense of Buddhism. And he wrote a big treatise, kind of, but in the heart of that treatise, he has a single sentence, which I see as the a whole civilization, Chinese, whole Chinese, five, six hundred years effort to try to understand Buddhism, all got encapsulated in this one sentence. You ready? <laughs> the sentence is, awakening, enlightenment, liberation, freedom, awakening beckons us within everything. Awakening beckons us within everything. That's quite something as a synthesis of, you know, all of Buddhism. And so what is it that beckons you now? What is it that the awakening that's here, that's like, come, you know you. <laughs> I'm right here. You just haven't looked the right direction. Or you're not paying attention or something. But it's here. It's already here. What is that? Some of you uh, used to go to Santa Sabina. We used to rent a retreat center before Spirit Rock in, in San Rafael. A, a kind of a, it had been a convent or seminary for nuns. Beautiful place, kind of small, cozy, the, the most wholesome, uh, in my mind, kind of piece of Catholic convent architecture. I was very happy there. A little bit, and... Um, and I was teaching a retreat there, and there was a woman who came on many retreats back then who was deeply troubled. A lot of conflict, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, swirling in her thoughts and her ideas and her, her ideas that she was living in, the thoughts she was living in, I could see were kind of like a maze that she couldn't get out of. And she'd walk around. It was maze with no no exit, and she would just walk around and around. Or there was no solution in the world of her thinking, but that's where she was kind of stuck in. So I know she was somewhat unhappy for many years, and and then one morning in the middle of the two week retreat, we had the early morning sitting in November, and um, and in in the meditation hall where we sat. It was a little guided meditation the teachers did, and the light somehow came into that room in the most perfectly pure Catholic way. <laughs> Whatever that is, but it just was, and, and by the time the sitting was over, the room was so peacefully still. It was just, and this light coming in, and the stillness in the November atmosphere, and it was just so pristine, so beautiful, so perfect, so wonderful. Like, and I, I had a sense that everyone felt it because everyone kind of came out of that kind of like, yeah, wow. It's kind of the feeling. So it happened that uh, right after that sitting, her and I had our interview. 
And I had interviews in the middle of the bedroom, and they had these beautiful little convent nuns' cells, you know, just you know, for a bed and a chair and a little table. I love it. <laughs> it's been my, one, of my, one, of my, one of the ways I've hoped to die is to die in a room like that. It's something very meaningful for me. And, um, and so I came and sat in my chair and, and I was just feeling this, you know, I felt completely content, nothing needed to happen, just peaceful, just nothing. Just, life was just, in a sense, perfect, just that moment. Nothing was needed at all, no addition. You didn't need to add anything, no salt was needed to spice up life. It just, I was very content as so I sat there and she came in, and she was the same way. She sat down opposite me, and it was really lovely to sit there for a few moments looking at each other and feeling this contentment and this peace and this subtleness. And it was palpable between us. And I knew, knew her for years. It was so special to be there with her feeling this way. I don't know when she'd ever felt that way before. It was beautiful. And we kind of somehow or other, maybe non-verbally or verbally, we kind of acknowledged what was happening. So it made it even more special. And then she said, yes, but it wasn't this way yesterday. <laughs> and then she proceeded to explain to me how yesterday was. And as she did, I could see her like pulling, pulling in the past, pulling in the thoughts, recreating this. And I could see her be trans- physically and emotionally and psychologically be transformed into her troubled being, her troubled self. And I thought, what a loss. Why, why sacrifice that peace that she had for yesterday's difficulty. What was the exchange? What was the exchange value of that? It was quite something to watch. And she was back in the trance, kind of a spell of her memory, her thoughts, her struggles, herself as a person who's struggling. And it's quite powerful, the authority of our thoughts and our emotions and stuff that keep us kind of in a certain trance or certain spell, enchantment, that get, gets in the way of the immediacy of now. And what is it? What is immediacy? What's your contact with now that's immediate and how is it satisfying? Or what gets in the way of that? Do you have it? Do you see any value in the, your immediate, not, not just your immediate experience, but the immediacy of connecting to your experience. It's easy to say, well, the, this present moment, it's boring, it's quiet, you know, I could be at a party. But it isn't that the event is the issue, but it's the immediacy you offer to the event. What is that? So when the Buddha gave his famous discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he began by evoking something very powerful. 
the first part of the instructions, which is almost never talked about in all the instructions we give when we give the Four Foundations of Mindfulness instructions. So we're kind of overlooked. It's very powerful. In Pali, the word he used was ida. And some of you don't know this word. I want you to learn this word. Ida. Ida. Some people have Allah. Buddhists have Ida. Some people have Jehovah. We have Ida. Some people have Rama. We have Ida. Some people have Abba. We have Ida. And it's serious, you know, it's, it's wonderful. There's something, somehow I required this ah at the end. Something very, you know, it's very significant. Something that supports us, that holds us, as a refuge for us. You know, these other ahs are kind of sometimes seen as um, a higher power that's so important for some people to take refuge in and be supported by. Something beyond their own efforts and their own machinations. Some of them can trust some other higher power. And so we have that in Buddhism. It's called Ida. Isn't that what was nice? So you've been wondering, where have I been all these years? I've, they never told me about Ida. <laughs> so uh, Ida means here. Here. And I would propose to you that here has the potential, has the role in your life that some of these other ahs have. It's quite powerful. It's quite meaningful. Here. Here. And a lot of the instructions of a mindfulness practice is not so much about seeing into your experience, you know, what my breath is doing and this and that. It's part of it. But it's a way of arriving here. It's a way of awakening inside of you, yourself your capacity for immediacy and presence, to be present for here. And something beautiful happens when you're here in a full embodied way, when you're here. So here we are. So we are here. And I hope that as I give this talk that you don't just listen to my words. Because I can't really do it for you. I can, if, I, if you're just listening to me, then it's just more boring dharma. But what's your, what's your entryway into immediacy? What is it available for you here as you're sitting here listening and as you're sensing and being? A very important uh, moment for me in my practice was many years ago, 35 years ago or so, and uh, my first Zen teacher uh, named Mel Weitzman was uh, driving me uh, from San Francisco over to Berkeley in his old Volkswagen bug that he had back then. He was giving me a ride. I was this long-eared hippie, 
I don't know, didn't have a car, checking around. I don't know what I was doing, but I was going from Zen Center in San Francisco to Berkeley. And, and so he was asking me about my life. He was asking me what I was doing and things I was doing and stuff. And, and I told him different things, you know. I was I started my Zen practice and I was doing this and that. And so he listened. And then uh, halfway across the Bay Bridge, he, he, you know, he listened to me talk about my life, what I was up to. And he turned to me in the most wonderful way and he said, just to be alive is enough. And somehow in the kind of contrast of me talking about what I was up to in my life and talking about my life and being heard by the teacher and having turned to me, just, just to be alive is enough, settled something inside of me. It's like, oh yeah. All the, you know, at, the, at least for that moment, uh, you know, the tendency I had to look into the future for an answer. Have, I had, you know, I've, I have all these desires of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to get and become and all my defenses and ways I was trying to impress people and playing social games and trying to prove myself. And when he said that, something just dropped. It's just, and it's, you know, I don't know if I did it well, but what was important was not so much that I did it well that I dropped all this stuff, but rather that when he said that, it felt like it touched something really true in me, something really true. Just to be alive is enough. And some of my wonderful experiences in life, and from practice, practice, and being on retreat, is when I really felt that so fully. Just to be alive is enough, just to be, just be present. Nothing, needed, nothing needs to happen, just to be here. And I can imagine that for some of you and for many people in our world, this idea just to be alive is enough, which is to sit and be with nothing happening, nothing, you know, is um, a foreign idea, is maybe even a threatening idea. Why would anybody do that? I mean, there's so many great things to do in life. So many websites to visit. <laughs> One person today, I hope it's okay I mentioned this, but one person today said that um, the retreat was worth it coming just because he was disconnected from the computer and the internet and, tele- and, and cell phones and all that. Just that made the whole retreat worth it. So, so what are the forces inside of you? What are the voices and the authoritative voices inside of you that insist that just to be alive is not enough. That insist that it's not good enough just to be, just to sit here. It's not good enough just to breathe and be present. Some of you have those voices that come up inside of you, maybe not voices exactly, but those forces, those impulses when you're preparing for the meetings with the teachers. And it's not uncommon for people to say, you know, I, I spent the last half a day preparing for this meeting, <laughs> planning what I was gonna say, and you know. And so some, you know, some of that might be wise to, get, to use the time well, but some of it maybe is to impress the teachers. People have t- told me that, sometimes I'm trying to impress you or trying to say, figure out what you want so I say the right thing. And, 
So there, there's a voice inside that says, just being alive is not enough. I have to be something. I have to be something for the teacher. I have to prove myself or to do it right. And so there's a voice there that's not enough just to show up. And one of the things I learned from my Zen training was it, the tremendous beauty and value in going to meet with a teacher and just showing up, just being there. And it was a training to do because for me, I had a lot of people issues with my teacher sometimes and you know, wanted to impress them. And one teacher I had kind of father figure kind of thing too, I was intimidated by. And, and so part of the training for me in Zen was uh, going to see the teacher to see, could I meet the teacher, not to get advice, and not to impress the teacher, or not to, but just to meet the te- just to be there and to have two people meet each other, be present in their immediacy. Just to be alive is enough. Maybe like those first moments I had with that woman at Santa Sabina when we were just there. And it was a, it was a wonderful training for me. Uh, to look at all the ways in which I couldn't do that with my teachers and work through that and find a way where I can let go and, and, and just arrive and just be there, not to be anything in particular and to have the teacher not be anything in particular and to meet, to be there in the immediacy. So what are the other places where there's these forces that say, it's not enough just to be alive. I need to, I need to, I have to do something. I paid a lot of money for this retreat. I better have something to show for it. People are gonna ask me when I get back, how was the retreat? You better have a good story. Great. Enlightenment. Because after all, they went to Hawaii, so you better (laughs) have something. Or perhaps there's deep sorrow and grief and suffering that you carry with you. And it's really important for you. It's not enough just to keep experiencing that. You've experienced it for a long time. It's painful. And you're here genuinely, beautifully to find some relief, release from that, resolution of it. Just to be alive with my grief? How how can that be enough? It's a reasonable question. One of the useful approaches to being on retreat or doing Buddhist practice is to begin appreciating what you have let go of, what you've put down. Rather than focusing on what still has to be done, appreciate what has been done. Don't overlook it. Because you're nourished by that, we're we're taught by that, we're informed by that, we learn by it. So you've hopefully put down your computers and cell phones. Hopefully you've put down the news. Hopefully you put down your novels. 
Hopefully you've put down your work after now, fifth, fifth day of the retreat or so. There's a lot of things you've put down to some degree. And maybe there's a lot of stuff you haven't. But might focus on what you have put down, what's kind of receded. And it's an interesting exercise to do, and that is to take something like, something maybe that you enjoy, and then imagine one of the most satisfying moments of being on retreat here, if you have such a thing, where you're peaceful and settled and somewhat calm. Maybe some approximation of just alive is enough, just, just here. And imagine what it'd be like if the teachers came into the hall, middle of your sitting, you know, you're sitting there peacefully and you finally kind of, you're finally kind of a little bit quieter than you have been and it took days to kind of settle the busy mind. So in our infinite wisdom, the teachers come into the hall and have an important announcement to make that um, Apple has come out with an iPad 3 <laughs> proto- prototype and they thought it would be really interesting to make a gift to Spirit Rock and they have a have hundred of them and, and they decided, we decided to, because it's such a wonderful gift, it's season, we would like now during the sitting, make sure to have it right away, fresh, hot off the press. And, <laughs> because the Apple, uh, the Apple uh, technician is here and he's going to show you how the, app, the iPad 3 works. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be, you just love these teachers, the infinite wisdom of the teachers, wow, that was really great. And, I mean, some of you wanted, wanted me to entertain, I'm sure, but, but you know, you'd probably feel, oh, you'd probably go like this, you know, please don't. <laughs> Not that, anything but, that. you know, what? <laughs> That's like, it's, you know, you know it's, it's, it's something sacred was happening here, you just blew it. <laughs> you don't want to pick that up. It doesn't feel right, right? There's something beautiful going on here. Just that doesn't seem like, inside of you, there's no instinct to pick that up. Whereas it could easily be in your daily life, running around and doing stuff and looking at all the ads. And like, it can be pretty exciting to have someone hand you an iPad 3 and, you know, it's like, wow, this is cool. In that setting. But in this setting, there's something much better going on, something different going on, where you don't want to really touch that. You would lose something powerful. I hope you agree. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I, I did the same kind of thought exercise with someone many years ago in retreat who was doubting something about, the, oh, it had to do with what seems to be the Buddhism's um, kind of unenthusiasm for sex. You know, where's a place for sexuality and all that? And, and I said the same thing, imagine you're on retreat. <laughs> And it's peaceful, and you're finally quiet, and you're as still as you've ever been, and it feels so present, and you feel everything's so alive and so wonderful and so still, and the mind has not ruffled, hasn't ruffled for an hour or two. And do you want your lover to show up suddenly? Maybe some of you do, but... (laughs) 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 But... Love making is good and it's time and place, but there's other things that are nice too. And I wouldn't want that peace and that settleness, that liveness, that fullness. 
you know, agitated and with, you know, the energy of beautiful energy, but it's a very different kind of energy. There's something beautiful that can happen. So what, so, so what is it you've already let go of here in this retreat? And can you value that? Can you, and what is it like to have the mind? This is, and this is the important part of the exercise. What's, what's it like for the mind not to be picking it up? What's it like for the mind not to pick it up? What's it like for the mind, now that I remind you about these things, what's it like to kind of think about these things and have the mind say, I don't need to go there. I can let it be. What's it like for the mind not to say, no, it doesn't pick it up. And you have the experience of the mind somehow saying, no, no thank you. And feeling that that's a satisfying thing to do. I don't have to go there. I'm I'm sure you have the experience of thinking, I don't want to go there. But you don't have any choice, you go there anyway. And that's interesting to study and feel the gravitational force, feel the power, feel the, the magnetism or feel the glue that's operating that, that pulls you into the world of thoughts or ideas or what's going on. It's very interesting to study that. So to study it, you have to do it. And that's what we do sometimes. We go, look, what's this like? But then also what it's like when there's no glue, when there's no gravitational force. And you, you know, So I think all of you have let go of something to be here. And some of it some, some of it has to do with social how you are in social relationships, social concerns. And it's a relief to some degree. It's a relief that sometimes is not recognized until you lose it at the end of the retreat. And you look back and say, Wow, that was really nice not to have to be thinking and concerned about these things. So in terms of this talk, what's interesting also is to what degree do the voices, the forces that say, this is not enough, I have to pick up and do these things and figure these things out, the allure of thoughts and ideas, to what degree do they interfere, get in the way of our ability to be immediate, for immediacy, just being here now? And can you recognize how the pull into sensual desire, pleasure, can keep you from immediacy. The, the attachment to your stories and your views and your opinions and philosophies, your memories, how it keeps you from immediacy. Even in Buddhism we say that even the attachment to practice, meditation practice, any kind of rites and rituals and practices can sometimes get in the way of this immediacy. And I've known people who sit, I've I've done this, where I'm so busy meditating that I don't know what's going on. Or I'm so busy trying to make something happen in my meditation that I'm not really noticing what's really happening. 
I've been in situations where I've been trying to get concentrated. And I know what it's like to be concentrated, so if I'm going to get concentrated, thank you. So I kind of do this inner gymnastics. Try to do it. And after a while, it's not really working. <laughs> and then because it's not working, I'm getting a headache. And I said, what's going on here? And then I see I'm straining. I'm so focused on getting something that I've lost the immediacy, the totality, what's really going on here in the big picture. And if I relax and take in what's really happening here, I would see that I was straining. And do I want to live my life straining? Is straining a way to enlightenment? Strain your way to enlightenment. (laughs) So in the tradition, they talk about four general areas that people cling to, four areas that interfere with our capacity for immediacy, four veils, for enchantments, for spells we fall under, so we can't really be here in a full way. And so I've mentioned some of them already, but one, the first one they mention is, um, is a, a tremendous attachment to the world of sensual pleasure, which includes comfort. One of the most powerful forces in the human psyche is the drive for pleasure, the pleasure principle. And it's even, you know, some of the great philosophies are rooted in, begin with someone wanting pleasure. And I know some people measure their success as a human being, they measure their success as a spiritual person, as a meditator, by how much pleasure they have. Thinking that if if it's not pleasure, then somehow they're doing it wrong. It's not true. If you're only free when things are pleasant, you're not really free. And then second of these clingings, veils, is uh, the attachment to stories, to views, to opinions. It's, it's, in, the, in, the, in the classic text, they just say views. But then, then, you know, it's easy to think, well, views, well, yeah, I know I shouldn't have any opinions, and no, no, philo- I'm not going to have any philosophy. But, but it's not just philosophy, it's views like all the stories we live under. So many stories. And it, it takes a lot, of, it takes, I think, a lot of even courage to really see and admit the stories we live under with. It's hard to see, because a story, some, there's the obvious stories that we can tell our friends, tell ourselves even, but there's deeply uh, conditioned stories and views that come into us even before we're conscious almost. So when I was, um, when my oldest son was about, I don't know how old he was, two and a half or so, I had this moment where I was parenting him and looking at him playing or something and looking at myself being a parent and what things I said to him. And it sudden, I suddenly saw my conditioning 
and how I was passing it on to him. And the conditioning that I had was a conditioning of, of individualism. I wanted to be an individual, an autonomous. And it seemed perfectly normal. I mean, that, isn't that normal in America? But it's a particular cultural trait. And there's other choices of how to condition a child. And so I spent, it was become really clear when I spent a year in Japan, and I spent time living in a Zen monastery with the only Westerner group of 40 young Japanese monks. We, every, we did everything together. We lived together, we slept together in the same room, we ate together in the same room, we worked together and meditated together. And so it was kind of like, you know, we were together a lot. And uh, I remember one day at the monastery, waking up suddenly in the midst of working with all the Japanese monks and realizing that I was in a different social universe than they were. I was operating as an individual in a pool of other individuals. And they were operating as one individual that had multiple parts. They were part of a group as a part of the group. I was an independent element of the group. I was, I was seeing it as individual units of people. They were seeing the, the, the unit was the group. And it created a different way of being and seeing. And this is the collective view, the communal view that some societies have. That's very deeply conditioned in some societies. And it was like, I was just stunned. I had no idea that I had this conditioning that was so different. I thought that's the way the universe was built, was to be an individual. And, um, and luckily for me, I think, uh, when I saw that, I didn't think one was better or worse than the other. They were just two different ways of being. Valuable in their own way, they had their own joys and sorrows. There's different ways that the human, human beings have created how to get along, how to manage. We have to do something. And so when, when it was my turn to raise a child, I was passing him on what I knew, hoping that when he became an adult, he would have a practice that would deconstruct it. Because <laughs> that's what practice has been for me. And that's one of the opportunities for immediacy is that the more immediate you get, the more present you are, the less and less ideas and stories and views and conditioning that gets in the way of just being alive and being present. And as they say sometimes that vipassana is a whole, vipassana practice is a whole process of deconstruction, deconstructing, deconstructing all these layers of stories and conditioning we have. So we can just have this experience of such immediacy just here. So that's the second attachment. So the first is to sensual pleasure. The second is to, is to views, stories. The third is to, um, uh, it's called, usually called rites and rituals, but that's kind of Victorian English. Uh, it's really, the Pali word means um, to practice and precepts. So that's kind of interesting for, you know, getting attached to practice and precepts. 
I thought Buddhism was all about practice and precepts. It is, but don't get attached to it. Don't take it so seriously. Isn't that great? Be serious about your practice, but don't, not, don't be too serious about it. Because if you are, it just gets in the way of the immediacy of here. To invest, people sometimes invest so much into their practice or invest so much into protecting themselves from the practice. And then the fourth of these great clingings, attachments, is the attachment to self. Attachment to our identity. Attachment to how we want to present ourselves, represent ourselves to others or to ourselves. How we want to defend ourselves. And a lot of the attachment to self can be a negative sense of self. I'm worthless, I'm bad, I'm... Spend a lot of time in being apologizing for ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with having a sense of self, but as we settle and get quieter and quieter, it's interesting to notice what identities and what self-attachments are at least temporarily not operating. It's really useful to see that, because if you see that's not operating, maybe then you can start questioning how often it's useful. If I don't need it now, do I need it then? You know, do I need to prove myself to someone? Do I need to be seen a certain way? Do I need to be seen? One of the great issues around self, which goes back, people have been doing it since at least the time of the Buddha, because he taught about it, is the, 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 is the mental activity of conceit. And conceit in Buddhism is having the view that you're better than someone else, superior, which is what we think of conceit here in English in America. But it also means to have the view or the idea that you're inferior to someone else, less than. That's also a kind of conceit because it's conceit because you've wrapped yourself around a self-identity. You made a self. You solidify around something. And in Buddhism, it's just as bad to have the conceit of I'm better than it is to have the conceit that I'm worse. It's a lot of suffering, but it gets better. Because in Buddhism, they also say that it's it's conceitful to say that you're equal to someone else. (laughs) So then what's left? And what's left is you don't play the the self game. You don't get involved in comparisons of any kind, better, worse, equal. Why bother? Why bother? Why bother? Because that's a mental activity. It's a story we're telling ourselves. And is it possible to live without that story? Is it possible to go up to someone and meet them without any concern on your part, any thought at all, better, worse, equal? Just here we are, present. This is how it is now.
And some of you have let go of a lot of conceit to be here, that you know, they would operate outside of here. Because, you know, there's kind of a equalizing, a lot of the status, and many personal situations aren't known here and aren't relevant or playing itself out here. And so to some degree, a lot of things get dropped here. And you might be interesting to watch when you leave here what you pick up. But then some things get picked up when you come here. Who's the better meditator? I've, you know, I used to sit sometimes in the Zen monastery, thinking I was pretty hot meditator, <laughs> <laughs> having thoughts, thinking, but basically thinking about the person sitting next to me. He's not really meditating. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't know. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's not getting concentrated. And as long as I was having those thoughts, who was it who was not meditating? So this immediacy. So one of the very interesting, so to exp- experiment, what does it mean to be immediate? What does it mean to be really here? What's this, what's happening right now? What's, maybe something, maybe there's a Dharma door. The Buddha said when he was awakened, the Dharma doors are open. If you're ready to step through here, something is here. If you think that some, there's a great bang thing that's gonna happen to you, enlightenment, you know, if Maybe not this retreat, but maybe if you do 30, 30 more retreats, eventually something will, you know, happen. You've missed the boat, for sure. What is it that's here and available? So there's an interesting exercise along these lines that I would like to offer you. Nothing has to change. And that is... You've been practicing attention for these days here, practicing using your awareness. Perhaps, maybe you don't think you've done it very much or very well, but at least there's some, some attempt to try to be aware, use your awareness here. So you're trying to be attent- bring your awareness and be mindful of your breathing and bring your mindfulness to your breath. Or bring your, right now, some of you at least, to have your mindfulness, your attention focused on what I'm saying. And so we use our awareness here. Attention gets used. Just like it gets used in ordinary life, it gets used. But here we use it in a way where it stands out more in highlight. It's more, it's conscious. It's uh, volitional that we're using our attention to be present. So you have hopefully some sense of that, what it's like to be attentive, to be aware. And then turn yourself around 180 degrees And notice and study, feel, what what is it like to be aware? What's it like to be mindful? What is awareness like? What's the quality? What's the mood? What's the attitude? What's the texture that's there in how we are being mindful and how we're being aware? So it's, it's very easy to get caught up in 
the things of the world. Certainly you can be caught up in our thoughts with the things of the world and live in a world of aboutness, thinking about things. And it's possible also to be caught up or be very involved in, if you're really present sometimes, just being present of the breath, of an itch, of a sound, of, of a thought, different things. But, it, but one of the pieces of what's going on is not just the things we can be aware of, but what the nature of, of awareness is that's doing the knowing. What's that like? And is there's in that, if, you, if you're very quiet and still, and look in there, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you recognize? What do you hear? What kind of attitude is there? And often, there can be a very, sometimes subtle attitude that's very interesting. And sometimes it's the linchpin of your whole personality, of your whole kind of drama, your life, that's, that's there in the background, maybe it gone unrecognized. Certain kind of deeply embedded, deeply conditioned attitude, belief, mood, emotion, something. Because more often than not, our awareness is not done alone. Our awareness comes along with attitudes and beliefs and feelings and stuff. So it's kind of like turning around and so for some people it's looking at the, at the knowing or looking at the knower. What, what is that like? What's there? Should we bring... Or for some people it's turning around and looking at the doer. Who's doing all this doing? You're doing practice, doing your practice, doing your practice. Who's a, what's, going, what's a doer like? What's the quality? What's the attitude? What's the texture? What's, the, what's happening there with the doer? question. Look at that. Be really quiet, really still. Don't think about it a lot. Just turn around and feel and sense, what's that like, that doer? Remember uh, Wizard of Oz? And um, they finally made it to the Emerald City. And there's the wizard. Is that what he's called? And then he's, you know, his big, booming voice, authoritative God voice. And then the dog Toto pulls the curtain. And he's just a little plump guy or something, cute little guy. So that's exercise of turning around 180 degrees is an exercise of pulling the curtain and seeing what's there for you. And what do you see? What do you find? If what you find is a knower or a doer, then you should look more carefully because as soon as you have an er, a doer or a knower, it's a magnet for all these cultural conditioned and personally conditioned ideas of who you have to be or not be. And it's a burden that we carry with us. If you're lucky enough to drop all the ers, be erless, and just, just know without the knower, to be aware. So what do you discover there? So that's an interesting topic. So it's, it might be something that if somebody, this, this is relevant for you, this exercise is 180 degree turning exercise. And if you see something interesting there, it might be something interesting to come to your next interview and talk about it. See what the teachers have to say, meeting that place. 
So just to be alive is enough, just to be here. And there might be a lot of protests, that's not enough. I can't do that, it's not safe to do that. Gail doesn't realize how complicated and important my life is. Every culture has rituals, powerful rituals that people do, transformative rituals. And this is a ritual that you're involved in coming to this retreat. And it has the three elements of ritual. It has the leaving your world behind temporarily. It has a period of limbo. It's called liminal period and then has a period of return. And the transformative power of ritual has to do with this period of limbo, this liminal period. But for it to do its work, you have to be willing to leave behind something. But you don't have to leave it behind forever. You get to go back. So if you think, so this is the place where it's one of the safest places in the world to take the risk, to have the courage, to try out just to be alive is enough. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to solve your problems. You don't have to review the past. You don't have to figure out the future. You don't have to make a better self. This is a place where it's one of the safest places in the world just to be. And we're in this phase, this liminal phase, it's kind of, kind of, I don't know limbo is the right word. Maybe that's how you feel, but, but you know, we're in liminal, this middle area. And you, you should have some point in your life, it would be nice to have had the experience of putting it all down. Or if you can't put it down, which is very hard to do, I can't just say you can do it, but to have a willingness to do that, to be interested in doing that, and kind of lean in that direction. Let me try to put everything down as opposed to leaning towards all the things you're picking up and holding on to, all your burdens. And so we come to New Year's Eve. We have ritual as well. <clears throat> it's also kind of a ritual. And it's a ritual of transition. It's a ritual, a time when our culture, many people, use it as a time to put down something and pick up something else. To start fresh. To not be carried, not, not carry the past unnecessarily into the future. And to go into the future starting fresh. New Year's Eve is the perfect Buddhist holiday. (laughs) Made for Buddhists. The only complaints complaints Buddhists have is we don't do it often enough. (laughs) It should be every day. So, in a little while we'll do the... We're going to welcome in the new year and 
And as part of it, of the ritual we do, um, we ask you to take a piece of paper with two sides that are, you know, you can write on. And on one side, write down what you'd like to put down. What burden? What clinging? What way of being would you like to put down? Leave in 2011. And on the other side, <clears throat> write some intention you have for how you'd like to go into 2012. So I think there'll be paper out there. There will be paper, in case you don't have paper, there'll be paper put out and little pieces of paper. And then uh, at some point, uh, so, uh, so bring it into the hall for the last sitting, which starts at 10.50. And at 10.50, as part of the, the evening ceremony ritual, uh, we have a very powerful, very powerful special fire. <laughs> Eddie, you're making it, right? Yeah, Eddie knows how to do it. He's gotten the transmission and hey, this is a, this, this, this fire is quite something. And we're gonna, you're gonna put that paper in the fire. And I think that's all you need to know for the evening. There might be some surprises. And um, so we now have um, um, a short period. It says in 15 minutes you're supposed to be back here to sit. (laughs) So... Maybe you will. <laughs> and then at, uh, so we'll sit from 8.45 to 9.15, and then uh, down to the dining room for uh, mindful snacking. <laughs> Come back here at 10, sit for half an hour, and then a 20 minute walking period and then come back at, uh, at 10.50 for a little sit in the beginning of our, our ceremony. May each of you discover the great satisfaction and meaning of immediacy. And may your immediacy be a gift to the world. Thank you.